This episode is brought to you by Square. If you run a restaurant or business, Square has the tools to help you stay connected to customers. Learn more at square.com slash go slash in the sauce. As the news of coronavirus reverberates throughout the world, we at HRN are especially concerned about how coronavirus will impact our food system. We will use our platform to support the restaurant, agriculture, hospitality, and other food-related industries by maintaining our coverage and operations. As social distancing becomes the temporary norm, podcasts are more important than ever. There's never been a more crucial time to stay informed about the state of our food system and the way that food connects our global community. We're sharing all of our COVID-19 coverage at heritageradionetwork.org slash COVID-19. From interviews with nonprofit leaders and journalists, to firsthand accounts from chefs and restaurant owners, to reports on how the crisis is affecting regional farms. Our team is working remotely from all over to keep Food Radio alive. HRN needs your support more than ever to keep sharing essential stories and resources with our listeners. Make a donation of any amount. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Allie Ball, a former grocery buyer turned wholesale consultant and the creator of Retail Ready, an online course for producers of packaged product in the food industry. Allie has helped hundreds of emerging brands understand what it takes to get their products on the retail shelf and keep them there by sharing the behind the scenes secrets and thought processes of wholesale buyers as they, shit, can we start again? Sure. I'm reading your bio. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Today, I'm speaking with Allie Ball, a former grocery buyer turned wholesale consultant and the creator of Retail Ready, an online course for producers of packaged product in the food industry. Allie has helped hundreds of emerging brands understand what it takes to get their products on the retail shelf and keep them there by sharing the behind-scenes secrets and thought processes of wholesale buyers as they assess new products for their stores or online marketplace. Allie is also the host of another food podcast, which everyone who listens to this one should be listening to, called Food Biz Whiz, all about wholesale strategy. Um, Allie's literally the wealth of knowledge I wished I had in 2017 <laughs> when I decided to sell a fresh sauce in a pouch in supermarkets. Um, and this episode is a must listen for new founders. Hi, Allie. Hi, thanks for having me today. Thank you so much for being on here. Your name has come up quite a few times. Um, so I wanna make it clear that you have not 
sponsored this podcast. <laughs> you have not paid to be on this podcast, but basically you could have for all of the love that you've been getting from guests. On well, I, I so appreciate that. And I think I told you Sylvie of Just Date Syrup texted me and she was like, I just dropped your name on this podcast. You might <laughs> want to go take a listen. And right. sure enough, I did. I was like, oh man, you know, this is, I got to connect. I got to, I got to reach out to Allie. We got to, we got to connect. I know it's great. I feel like it's like you're the West Coast Allie and I'm the East Coast Allie. And, you know, we're both trying to just help people yeah. figure this stuff out. Um, so tell me a little bit, you know, I always like to sort of where you grew up, were you into food? You know, what did you see yourself doing as a grown up when you were nine? Um, yeah. Yeah. All so I actually grew up in Connecticut. You probably don't know this about me. I grew up in suburban Connecticut no. and I was just a child of the eighties. I, <laughs> you know, I'm a middle child. I've got an older brother and a younger brother. And I grew up in a household with two parents who had each started their own businesses. So wow. I just, I know, you know, it's always, it's always amazing to look back at the paths that led us yeah. here and see those pieces that come together. Yeah. And I didn't realize what a what a gift that was until until I did finally start my own business and I realized yeah. that I just I I always knew I would start a business. That's just what we did in my family, right? Right. Yeah. Um so I grew up in Connecticut. I had a pretty typical childhood. My mom was like one of those Moosewood cookbook ladies, like we had the Tuesday taco nights and (laughs) buttered noodles and all of that. And my love of food really began when I was in high school. So I thought I was going to be a photojournalist and I Uh thought I was going to go to NYU. This is, this is like, that was the plan. That was the plan. And so I decided that I needed to spend a year abroad in high school. And I don't know how I convinced my parents to let me do this, but yeah, what, like through a program, like, did yeah, you go live with yeah. a family? Is no, that- it was exactly, it was through a program and I went and I lived with a family uh-huh. and there was a girl who was also my age and I was in Spain or I was in, I was in France, France and yeah, I was in Western France. I was in Britannia and mm-hmm. that just opened my yeah. eyes up you know, to a whole other world of food. That'll Um, do it. (laughs) Right. Exactly. You know, and I was, I was 15 years old and living with this family who just celebrated food in a way that I had not experienced before. Um, Amazing. And I loved it. I loved it. Yeah. So then I moved, you know, I, so I spent a full year there. I took classes in French and I just fell head over heels in love with France and I came back stateside. I went to college. I actually did a tour of NYU and I was like, this is not for me. I don't right. know what I was thinking. <laughs> and so I, I went to Skidmore College in upstate New York. Yeah. And I spent my sophomore year in France again. And I spent wow. my junior year in Copenhagen. Wow. And yeah. I just went all in. I was like, yeah. you know, screw the US. I'm I'm gonna go right. back to Europe. And um after, after college, I went back and lived in Copenhagen again. And, um, you know, 2007, my visa was expiring and I had mm-hmm. to pick a place to go. So I moved to San Francisco just on a total whim. Wow. Did you, 
like was any particular reason or you were just like that looks like a fun place to try and it felt a little bit different from the east coast yeah so many of my high school friends ended up in new york and i i wanted to be in a city but i wanted a city that had really close that was in close proximity to the outdoors i loved nature and so san francisco seemed like the best of both worlds and i can understand that yeah and i had this crew from copenhagen who had moved to san francisco you know a few months before i did right you know so i had a few friends and right um my then boyfriend, now husband, and I Great. moved together to San Francisco in nice. 2007. Yeah. Aw, so yeah. nice. And so then, as legend has it, you landed at Byright. Um, yeah. yeah. Byright's come up a lot lately, too. I mean, um, I had uh, Sana on from... Yeah, Diaspora. Um, yeah, yep. Diaspora. And she was talking about Byright also. And... How did, so how did that happen? How did you, how did, yeah, is that a plan? Like, (laughs) no, no, right. I, so I moved to San Francisco and I actually started working in tech and I worked for a company that did corporate team building and management development. And so I was doing corporate training, manager training for these big companies like Google and Genentech. And, you know, it was, I don't know, 22 year old me learning so much about people management. Mm -hmm. And ironically, Allie, I didn't love the company culture of of that corporate team building business. Right. (laughs) Right? Uh (laughs) And so I was like, I got to do something else. You know, I, I got to get back to something that I really, that I really love. And so I'll tell you, I, I was just browsing Craigslist and a role came up for grocery buyer at Byright. And I remember reading the Craigslist post out loud. And I was like, <laughs> Ian, you know, my husband, I was right. like, Ian, I could do this. Like, I yeah. would be really good at this. Aww, <laughs> you know, right. they were looking for someone who had great people management skills, someone yeah. who had an excellent palate and was a, you know, a culinary trendsetter. And, you know, it, I always look back at that. I'm like, I was so naive thinking like, who cares if I haven't managed millions of dollars in budgets? Right, like right. who cares if I haven't had <laughs> I inventory like food. management? I like the grocery store exactly. and I like people. Right. Exactly. So I was like, I'm going to apply. And like, I think I'd be really good at this job. And sure enough, sure enough, you know, obviously we know where the story goes. They, right. they hired me. And when I got, it's so wild. When I started at Byright, I was the very first manager that they hired externally. Right. And I was employee number 68. And by the time I left, we had over 350 employees. Wow. So I just saw crazy, crazy growth at Byright. I feel like it was the glory days when I joined. It was, it was such a special place. For sure. And, you know, you have so, there's so many things that I feel like people need to hear from you that I kind of want to like skip over, you know, like anything else and get to sort of, you know, you were there for six years, six years. years. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. Um, Six years. And I mean, basically you are, it's funny because when I first hired, so Courtney was like my first hire, she Mm -hmm. was my, like my buyer at Fresh Direct. Like she was, you know, and I literally called her one day and was like, I don't speak grocery. I don't understand what my distributor is talking about. I don't understand something about a promo. 
can you please just come over and yeah. like work here? I, I just, I needed someone to like interpret grocery speak for me. Yeah. Um, because it's a language that I just had never learned. And like any other language, you need an interpreter for the first, you know, however many years. And good um, for you for recognizing that too, right? Because I think- I mean, it was very, it was- <laughs> It was apparent. didn't recognize it, <laughs> there would be something wrong with me. Yeah. I had no clue. I would get off the phone and be like, what? I had no idea what they were talking about. And the acronyms and the- and. And I started getting, I think what happened for me was I started feeling like it was on purpose that Mm -hmm. it, and I started feeling resentful. Yeah. And then I was like, ding, ding, ding. These people are supposed to be my partners in this business. I can't be hostile and I can't feel this feeling every time I talk to them or I'm in the wrong business. There has to be some way for me to understand what they're saying, because chances are, this is a communication issue, not mm-hmm. like a human being issue. <laughs> right. So, and Allie, I sometimes think that, it's a human being issue, but mostly I, it's a communication. Yeah. Issue. And I think that you're, you're bringing up this point that people don't remember. And it is that grocery buyers or wholesale buyers are not the bad guys. Right. right. And yeah. so often we, we, I say we as a, you know, former buyer the brand side, right? Yeah. Or, well, yeah. we, as a buyers are perceived as the gatekeepers to right. a brand's success. And at the end of the day, we have to realize that we're all in it for the same reason. Right. We all want high sales of our packaged food or beverage product. Right. And so the faster a brand can realize that a buyer can work with you and a buyer can support your goals and a buyer yeah. can really be your ally, yeah. the, the faster you'll succeed in retail. Yeah. And I think, you know, the flip side of that is also one of the main messages that I see with the brands who I interview. It's not only are they your ally, but how can you serve their needs, right? It's like when brands see themselves as help mates basically to the buyer, you know, as opposed to like, they're blocking me from getting more, you know, skews on the shelf, asking the buyer, like, what do you need? What are you seeing? What would make your life easier? How, you know, all of that is like where I see sort of success, you know, the, the scale tipping a little bit. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Can we talk about that for a second? I've, I've yeah. got something I want to say. I would love to talk about that. <laughs> yes, please. So one of the major mistakes that I see brands make is that they, they're too in love with their own product. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course you want to be in love with your own product, but so often brands fail to realize that, that that buyer is putting you on the shelf to help them achieve some right. sort of buyer goals, right? Whether yeah. that's more margin in your category or higher sales in that category or you know whatever it is, some sort of initiative that they're trying to, to take on on the store right. level. And when you are a brand who is stuck in this belief that the buyer should bring you on right. just because you're a delicious product or because you've got, you know, you're right. sourcing locally or like whatever it is, you don't realize you you're not presenting a pitch that is any is of any interest to a buyer unless right. you are specifically saying like this is how i can help you hit your goals and this is what i bring to the table as a brand like yep. that buyer doesn't care they don't have time to care 
Yeah, no, I think, and you know, why don't we just get, get into it a little bit? Why don't we sure. take a little break? We're going to skip your consultant. You do a great job consulting. That's the end of the, like, <laughs> the first part. We're going to take a little break. We'll be back. And then we're going to just get down and we're going to start with production and we're going to move all the way through till marketing. We will be right back. I'm back with Ali Ball. Um, okay. So I think you and I think fairly similarly. Mm-hmm. The first thing I want to start with is production. And I want to, I want to just, you, I want your best advice, your do's, your don'ts, you know, what you've learned, what you've seen. I yeah. have a lot of people, as I'm sure you do, <laughs> come to me with a great idea a better for you this, a non-gluten-free that, you know, this, but brighter. And there are a lot of different directions that they can go. Um, There's producing it themselves. There's finding an incubator. There's going to a co-packer. There's finding someone who liaises between you and the co-packer to first formulate, then co-pack. A, I know it's super category dependent, obviously, but what are some things that you would advise along those lines? I have a product. Now what? Yeah. I have an idea. And then B, money. Like reasonably, how much do you think generally someone needs to quote unquote bootstrap for the first, because everyone thinks bootstrapping means you don't need money. (laughs) That's not true. (laughs) Um, so yeah. you need money to bootstrap. So <laughs> yep. what do you break it down? Yeah. Okay. So I hate this answer, but I'm going to say it depends, it depends yeah. right? And that is such a frustrating answer to hear when, you, when you're on the, the brand side, but it, right. like you said, Allie, it just, it depends so much category to category, but let's talk about it from, from a high level. So, right. so you've got this great idea. You're like, I make, <laughs> I make this thing and my friends and family say that I should sell it because they I all really love it. Bean cookies. This is yes. like my generic in the sauce. <laughs> Black bean, great cookie, high fiber, high protein, low sugar, low blah, blah, cookie. Yep. Yes. Okay. Okay. And everyone loves it. And everyone's like, you should sell this. Yeah. And your mom's like, I would totally buy this. Right. Right. Here's the deal. Your friends and family are lying to you right? <laughs> until, until they pull out their wallets and they're mm-hmm. actually handing over hard earned cash for your product and not just as a favor, right? Right. Um, they are not the people who should be giving you business advice. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is a very dangerous position to be in where you are getting encouragement from fe- friends and family. Well-meaning. Right. Oh, of course. Of yeah. course, right? Like the number of business ideas my mom told me to pursue are just right. <laughs> ridiculous. Um, but at the end of the day, it's not your friends and family's purchases who is, who are going to like make or break your business. Um, and so, so we've got this high level, like I want to make a black bean cookie. I think there's two things that you've got to figure out. One is, can I sell this black bean cookie for more than it costs me to make it? Right. (laughs) Yes. That is a very good question. To ask and surprisingly sort of challenging for people to answer. Yes. That's a great question. Yes. And yeah. I, and 
you know, you can hear it in my voice. I'm, I'm laughing a little bit because right. this seems like such a natural question to ask, right? It's right. like, well, duh, of course you need to make money off each sale of your cookie. But I think people skip this step because yep. they're so enamored with the idea of launching a food business. Yeah. Um, that's true. And so if at the very beginning, you have to do at least some back of the envelope calculations to figure right. out, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to sell this black bean cookie for $4.99 a cookie. Right. Who the heck is going to buy that? And I'm only going to be making 20 cents a cookie. Like, right. oh my goodness, uh, the numbers just don't work out. And so, that makes so much sense because it goes, yeah. it's also goes back to, and we've, you know, people who listen to this podcast have heard me say it. There are, the second step of that is like, okay, so my black bean cookie is $4.99 per cookie, but it's so amazing Mm -hmm. that everyone will want to buy that anyway. And the answer to that is no, they won't. And that's the thing, like people, you have to look at your category and see what the prices are, right? You can, if you're a premium product, and I mean, I'd love your opinion on this too. Like if you're a premium product, $1.50, maybe $2 more than sort of like the non-premium version of your thing. But when you start to get into, you know, the $8.99, you know, you can't sell something that that people are buying a version of at $2.99 for $10 on the shelf. You might be able to do it direct, but then you probably won't be able to get to the shelf. Right. You can't scale in the same way, right? Like it's a very different experience. And I I hear this a lot, right? It's like, oh, well I can sell my cookie for $8.99 at the farmer's market. Like it sells all day long at the farmer's market. Like why won't it sell off the grocery store shelf? It's like, well, think about it. You know, you're a cheery lady behind a well set up booth at the farmer's market. Of course, people are going to come and hear your story and buy your cookie. But when it's sitting all alone on the grocery shelf, that's not happening. Um, so at the very, the very beginning, right? Like, can you make a, a product that people will pay for that people will pay the right price for? Um, and can you be profitable when you sell it? And just because Allie, like, say we conclude that you've got to sell that cookie for five bucks, it doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that you have to stop your business idea right there. Right. If it the numbers don't work out. Right. Exactly. Right. 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 And so I think that people, people get discouraged or right. often what I hear is like, oh, well, I'm not making money now, but when I, when <laughs> yeah. I scale, <laughs> I can make money. And I think that that is a, a really slippery slope to, yep to start going down as well. Yeah. So, so I just want to share one little thing that yeah. the, when we first started, I met, I think I might've told the story on the show before, but we met this sort of grocery veteran um, who had no idea why he was meeting me and, you know, <laughs> what, what sauce I was talking about. But basically I had, you know, five questions for him and I just decided to reverse engineer everything, you yep. know, and question yep. number one was, if I want this sauce to be on the shelf at six ninety nine, yes. what do my all in costs have to be? Yep. And when I say all in, it's not only the packaging of the thing, like the actual pouch, but the case that holds them, all of the ingredients, the label that you stick on, yep. and the big ding ding ding, the actual labor of yep. making it, which yep. for all of you guys who listen regularly is called your tolling. Yes. Um, we didn't know what that would be because we were making it ourselves at that point. But basically the answer he gave me from a 699 on the shelf 
to like what my cost per yep. couch has to be, all in was a dollar twenty-seven. Yeah. Now I am not there, um, yeah. but it's the number I think I will like have a dollar twenty-seven in my brain for like the rest of my life. And at some point, when I hit a dollar twenty-seven, <laughs> I will have some sort of a party. But yeah. How would you advise people when you're talking about that, like back of the napkin numbers, what, where, what are those numbers? Like, how would you even start? Yeah, that's a really great question. So at the, the, the very first start is what, what does it cost ingredient wise to make this product? Right. So like literally your flour, your sugar, your black beans (laughs) next, like you said, Allie, you want to calculate your packaging costs. Mm -hmm. So if I'm ordering, let's say I'm ordering, I don't know, bags off of you line. I want to figure out how much the bag cost. It's landed cost. Once I calculate all the shipping costs that go mm-hmm. into it, mm-hmm. I need to calculate if I put a sticker on that bag, I need to yeah. calculate, you know, every single thing that goes into the production and the packaging of the product. Right. Like you said, Ali, you've got to put in a line item for your labor. So whether, and this is where people get stuck too, right? They're like, well, it's just me and it's a, it's my business right. and I don't need to pay myself at the beginning, but at some point you're going to need to pay somebody to right. make this make product. It. Right. So estimating your labor, figuring out your distributor and your broker costs are really important. And a Again, this is where there's so many places to get stuck, right? But this is another area where people get stuck is at the beginning, they don't factor in that, you know, 30% margin for their broker distributor costs. So down the line, once they, once they start trying to sell into wholesale, they've got a nightmare of (laughs) of financials that they have to untangle. Um, And then of course, I, you got to think about your marketing budget. So once again, like once you start pursuing bigger grocery accounts, you're going to be asked to do promotional spend and trade spend and all of that sort of stuff. And that's got to, that's got to go in somewhere as well. Yeah. I mean, even, you know, I remember, um, just, I I was invited to speak at like a whole foods Northeast Mm -hmm. regional thing. And, you know, I just talked about sort of the idea of partnering with the store rather than, you know, sort of the, the other tack and how it was very helpful and how we really, you know, we did a ton of demos and I can't tell you the number of brands that were in that room that were like, I've never done a demo. Yeah. And, you know, I think that that goes to sort of, you know, we will get to it, but I mean, I had Pat Jamey on here last year, who's like the king of the demo. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Sir Kensington's basically became Sir Kensington's because they just demoed their faces off. But, you know, it can feel a little bit like, I remember being like, people will just want it. You have to just (laughs) look at the grocery store and imagine your your little bag or box or thing on this sea of other things. And what is going to make people, it's like that push pull that we always talk about. You can get it on the shelf, but what's going to get it pulled off the shelf. And as amazing, it's like people with their babies, the most beautiful, talented, incredible, perfect product in the world still needs people to know it's there. Yeah. And, and that happens at store level. It doesn't happen you know, there's a lot of steps in between seeing an Instagram ad for something and then actually buying it from the shelf. So that, that is a part of it. 
This episode is brought to you by Square. Square has been working hard to help restaurants and businesses adapt by providing tools they need to be nimble and keep customers safe. One of these tools is Square Online Store. It lets you set up a free online ordering page with curbside pickup and local delivery. When we decided to open the cooking school back up as a contactless provision shop, Square made it super easy. All we had to do was plug in our offerings and pricing. We didn't need to contact anyone at Square. It was that intuitive. But I did get a call from a customer rep asking me how I was doing and how he could help. That meant a lot. It's totally free to set up your online menu and pricing and easy to keep updated. If you're already using Square Point of Sale, you can automatically import your whole menu online. See everything that's available by visiting square.com slash go slash in the sauce. Okay. Going back to like those first steps. So yeah. So if, have you seen though, like, do you have, I know it's category dependent, but like I am, I, you know, I have this recipe yep. for this black bean cookie, you know, but I don't know about shelf life and I don't know, you know, how to calculate a formula as opposed to like a recipe do you find that that brands do better when they just kind of bite the bullet and like find someone to help them formulate it professionally earlier I think it depends on your your vision of success right like Mm -hmm. Allie if you want this black bean cookie to be in three dozen stores regionally, you know, in your own hometown and your region there, you want to be doing your farmer's markets on the weekends. And, you know, that is your vision of success. Then maybe you don't need to go to that (laughs) food scientist to help you get that shelf stable recipe that has a 180 day shelf life. Right. Right. But if your goal is to be a national product that is shipped all across the country, you have to take the steps to make that, to make that, you know, viable for your product from the very beginning. Because, you know, even if I love your cookie, if it's got a three-day shelf life on it, it's not going to work to ship it all across the country. Yeah. And I I think that that goes also sort of like existentially in a way, (laughs) it's so much hard work it's just as much hard work if you're doing 12 regional stores as if you are, you know, 10,000. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's not exactly, but it kind of is. Yeah. And, you know, to, to get into this, everyone has their grandmother's pickle recipe or whatever yep. it is that's amazing, but it's then, then make it a hobby and yep. package those cookies and send them out to everyone you love for the holidays. But if you're turning it into a business, yeah. I mean, at least in my opinion, the it, it's not like it's any easier or lighter on your brain when it's 12 stores. You still yeah. have all that stuff to deal with. You just aren't making as much money. Yeah, and I think it's I think you're right, Allie. It's so easy for food businesses to just become expensive hobbies. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Now I, yep. Um, At the beginning, I want to go back to this idea though, at the beginning, like how much money do you need? And like, do you go all in and like, what does it look like? I will tell you the brands that I see in retail ready or, you know, former one-on-one clients who said, 
you know, I'm going to take $40,000 and it's more money than I want to spend, but I'm going to take that $40,000 and I'm going to get the shelf life test and I'm going to spend $20,000 on my branding and my marketing and my website and my, you know, brand voice and my trademark and, you know, all of that stuff mm-hmm. are the ones who go further faster. Yep. yep. And I, you know, and I feel, I'm going to tell you, I feel mixed saying that because yeah. I don't want to discourage the person who has $2,000, who's thinking that they can have their cousin or somebody on Fiverr right. do their logo. And like, right. but at the end of the day, and I think I think you and I have talked a little bit about this, Allie, is that it's so easy. It's so much easier to have success when you are building a brand rather than building a product line. And when you've got $2,000 to invest, it's it's just harder, right? Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that there... And I would extend that to the formulation and the supply chain. Yeah. Because I think yep. that there are, and you'll, you'll probably agree, there are a lot of brands in the last several years who've been very comfortable spending hundreds of thousands mm-hmm. of dollars on brand, mm-hmm. but they don't own their own formula. Yep. Or, you know, they're, they're working with a co-packer who's very sort of precarious financially. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think that the the investment is, yes, obviously it's in like making sure that you own the trademark. That's a good first step. Yep. But also making sure that you have a supply chain that's sturdy, you know, making sure that like your, the, that your formula ticks the boxes that you need it to tick in two years from now. Yeah. Um, I got to tell you money and you know, time. Yeah. I've got a retail ready student right now who makes a sunflower seed butter, Mm -hmm. really awesome butter. You know, she makes three different flavors. She's got the squeeze pouches and then the 16 ounce containers. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, COVID went down (laughs) mid-March and her co-packer said like, oh, sorry, you know, we're we're cranking on our sun butter and we don't have time for your you know, minimum production run. Right. Um, because yep. you're such a small fish at our co-packer. Yep. I'm sorry, we're going to prioritize this other, you know, national brand of sun- right. sunflower butter. Um, and I hate to say it, but you know, her hands are tied. She's, yeah. there's, there's nothing that she can do. And she's got, you know, she was having so much momentum and yeah, sales sure. were cranking yeah. and like buyers were saying yes and then she was but like, she oh, shoot, like I can't, I can't fulfill on these orders. Yep. And it's not to say that everybody needs to set up their own production, right? I don't right. think that, that that doesn't have to be the takeaway here. Right. And I think it, it is important to realize where your skill sets are and whether or not you want to own a production facility right? Um, or manage the team that's producing for you or like right. whatever it is. Um, but I think it is important to realize that there are challenges whichever route you take. Right. Yeah. For sure. And I, I think, you know, I, cause I have friends both, you know, they mm-hmm. like yeah. make their own. And then I have friends that just like have, have been to the co-packer once and it's kind of on autopilot. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I think that the, 
the level of sophistication that's kind of needed for products today, especially because everyone wants to make sort of like, you know, a keto this or, you know, vegan that or gluten-free that or a low whatever this, there are professionals that do that. Um, In my opinion, unless you're making something that, you know, for the, like the Cleveland kraut guys, those guys mm-hmm. make their own kraut. They buy cabbage. Yep. <laughs> they buy, you know, they like, they buy a few things. It's they, it sits for a month, you know, and ferments like they've kind of, they figured out production of their product. Yeah. They don't yeah. have 46 different ingredients. They don't have, I mean, we can buy an HPP machine if we wanted to, it's yep. like several yep. million dollars, but you know, think about, I think, these are all great, you know, things to just think about, like the money part of it, the, the actual physical production, you know, build that relationship, just like you're building relationships with the buyers, build the relationship with the people that are actually making your product. Um, so that they'll squeeze you in on that line when they're busy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think there is something to be said about, investing in your business in the beginning. Yep. And then you've got, then you actually have skin in the game. Right. Right. And so I always get nervous when people come to me and they say like, Oh, Allie, like I just, I can't afford retail ready. Like it's money is just way too tight. And I, I mean, I'll, I'll just say it here, right? Like if you don't have $1,500 to invest in your business, you don't have a business. Right. Yep. So, so let's be very numbers specific. So, I mean, for me, like the getting it off the ground to where I knew that I had a viable product Mm -hmm. where I was ready to make a larger investment or then go find money to, you know, of people who would invest was about 500,000. Yeah. That's kind of where I always sort of say, and it sounds like an insane amount of money. (laughs) Um, but if you're thinking about sort of like making formulas, owning, you know, all, all of the legal that's required to set up the company and own the trademarks, branding, you know, I mean, tone, voice, all yeah. of it. Yeah. Setting, you know, all of it to me, like to be comfortable. And by the way, to get through your first couple of productions before yeah. you get paid for anything do you think that's insane or I don't, I mean, <laughs> you can hear it in my voice. It's a lot of money. Right. Yeah. And so what if, I, I laugh about it because I'm, I always say like, if you take retail ready and you decide that you don't have a viable business, I have just saved you $500,000. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think it's important to realize that you, you get in or you get out what you put in. Right. So you can buy, you can buy a logo off Fiverr for a couple hundred bucks. You can use legal zoom and get your trademark for, I mean, I have no idea, $200, but (laughs) like what's going to happen when Trader Joe's comes after you and says that you're in violation, your $200 legal zoom is not going to stand up. Right. Right. And so I think that it, it is really daunting to think that you need hundreds of thousands of dollars to start a food business. Yep. But again, it goes back to like, what scale, what's the scale, right? If you want to, if you want to have three SKUs and sell at the farmer's market, 
We're not looking at not need five hundred thousand dollars. No, you do not. Right, and I and I I think you know, like I always think back to like I heard um, the founder of Nut Pods Mm -hmm. on Madeline. Yes, on um, the VMG podcast. Mm -hmm. Wayne and what's what's their podcast name? It's very good. Um, I don't know. They have it's uh, unfinished biz. Oh. Um, Okay. And yeah. I mean, she like, she was like, not only in her 401k, she was like in everyone in her family's <laughs> 401k. Right. And, you know, I just, my thought is like, if for all those people that want you to start selling your cookies, rather than buying your cookies, get $10,000 and like yeah. do a, a nice family, you know, round. And for the many, many founders out there who don't have family or friends, there are angels, but I yes. do think yeah. that, that, you know, going into it with a little bit of cash, not to spend willy nilly, but to give yourself some buffer. So you're not in hell for the first two years yep. Yep. is a good idea. Okay. Well, and some cash to, to, to like help you out in those slow months. Right. Yeah. Because I will say, and I'm sure that you have found this in your own business. It takes a long time to gain right. traction in the food yep. industry. And yep. I, I, gosh, like when I, when I was in my buyer role, I would have brands meet with me. I would say, yes, I want to place an order and it would still take me months yeah. to bring in a product line. Yeah. Right. And so, so often I see in retail ready students will come in, they'll start working through the modules and they'll be like, Allie, it's been three weeks and I haven't seen an increase right. in sales. Right. I'm like, it has been three weeks. Like, right. <laughs> calm down. Like, of course you don't have an increase in sales yet. And it, I, I think it's really important to recognize that this is a slow, a yeah. yeah, slow burn, long game. Like we are looking at years, um, before right. you're, you're really sitting comfortable. Well, this is actually a really good segue into sort of the like wholesale as in like selling to buyers and yep. getting on the stores and, you know, on the shelves and grocery stores or D to C yeah. and how to start it. Obviously, like you guys have all heard me say a gazillion times, I'm a fresh product. It costs between $20 and $50 to FedEx overnight ship yeah. my sauce. So it's not going to be, you know, a sales channel that's going to be a, a particularly good one for us. But if you're starting, my guess is that you would advise everyone not to start a refrigerated sauce company <laughs> in your consulting work, but we can talk about that another time. But that's why sometimes people start direct, right? Especially yeah. if they have a shelf-stable brand, especially yep. if it's lightweight and they can ship yep. it, yep. they can get some good consumer insights. They don't have to think about the six-month lag. They can start selling right away, getting some you know, interest. Um, yeah. Do you, what, you know... Yeah, let's talk about it. I've, yep. I've got a lot of thoughts here. So Great. I first, let me say, Ali, like I... Somebody's got to make the refrigerated sauces of the world. Yeah, right? no, and so. I, I think I've, I think I have figured out a way to do it. Yeah, um, but it's it's hard. It's, it's, it's hard. A, yeah, a refrigerated product or a frozen product is mm-hmm. harder than a shelf stable bag of 
roasted almonds, right? right. Like that's just, it is, it's, <laughs> that is what it is. Um, I always say like if people, if everybody could invent, like if everybody could make caramel corn, like the world would be, right. the food industry would be so much easier. Does make caramel corn. I feel like there's more popcorn. It's like the bar. There's, there's so a much lot popcorn. of bars. There's so many bars. <laughs> so many bars. <laughs> so many bars. So much popcorn. Yes. Too much Gosh. granola. So much granola. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I, yeah. Every well, and that's the thing, Allie. Like categories are crowded now. Right. I mean, even ten years ago, when I was in a buyer role, like there was the bar was so much lower, and right. there were it was you know not as crowded. But okay, so back to this idea yes. of should I sell wholesale or should I sell direct to consumer? And I think there's a few things to consider here. But the right. very first thing to think about is where is your consumer already shopping, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you are, let's say you make sparkling beverages and you sell them in a glass bottle, carbonated sparkling beverages in a glass bottle, Mm -hmm. and you want to, you're like, okay, cool. Like it's going to be easier and cheaper and faster if I just launch and sell on Instagram, I'm going to sell direct to consumer. You've got to ask yourself, is my target consumer currently purchasing glass bottles of sparkling water (laughs) through Instagram? Right. And if the answer is no, it doesn't mean you can't do it. It just means, okay, why not? And what would I need to do to change consumer behavior to make them purchase direct from my website or direct, you know, direct from my link in the bio. Um, and I think it's really important to realize that changing consumer behavior is really, really hard. Yes. I I would like to ask to that. Um, (laughs) once again, (laughs) uh, we are trying to move people out of the middle of the store over to the fresh set. And we're also trying to tell people, Hey, your sauce comes in a pouch now. Yeah. Um, which, you know, I think we are like, I feel very, obviously I'm like joking because I think we, we are doing that and I think people are ready for it. Yep. Um, But it's definitely some consumer education and that's okay. As you would say, it just costs money, right? Because all of this stuff means that you are now having to, 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 teach people to do something different from what they were doing. Yeah. And how do you teach people? Well, you have to get the word out. Well, how do you get the word out? marketing, marketing, paid marketing. Right. Right. And, you know, of course people say like, okay, well, Instagram or Facebook, that's free. Like I don't need to do paid marketing, but you're paying for it in a different sense, right? Like you're paying your time to really develop your organic marketing channels that inevitably have limited reach. Right. Yeah. And I mean, also I'm like, sorry to interrupt. No, when we thought, I mean, I genuinely remember being like, we have 25,000 followers. They're all going to see that we're making sauce and then go buy it. Yeah. Turns out like out of that 25,000, like 700 actually see each post yep. or something yep. ridiculous. Yep. And so you're organic, unless you are like, I guess, Kylie, you know, or whoever, and you have a gazillion followers. Yeah. I mean, that's probably a great question. One that would be too hard to answer, but like I have a hundred thousand followers and I decided to make my black bean cookie. What percentage of my followers are actually going to know that I have a product a, and what percentage of them B are going to actually buy it. And my guess is, is both 
much lower than anyone actually. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. And here's the thing, Allie, like even if they see your post where you're like, I make the most delicious black bean cookies buy my cookies, there are still a lot of steps in between someone seeing that delicious, beautifully styled shot in their feed to clicking through and completing a purchase. Right. And I think that that's one of the, and I'm, I'm all for direct-to-consumer brands. I'm all right. for e-commerce. Like I, w- yeah. I want to say that loud and clear that yes. I do think that there is a place for that. For sure. I also think that it is, that we've got to look at the realities of how people are purchasing groceries right. and ensure that we are, that we aren't being naive in how much we can ask someone to change their behavior. And I think that's the thing for a little while, it was like the replacement for grocery stores. And I think what everyone is starting to sort of realize is, is it's just another sales channel and every sales channel has its costs and it's, and it's assets. And, you know, for those of us, and we are not necessarily included in this, for those of us who had strong D2C sort of platforms, when COVID came, those companies were gangbusters. They were sure. able to yeah. meet the need and they were able to ship out their own stuff. And yep. like all of us who are grocery store dependent had a little more trouble, especially if people didn't know to actively pick us on Prime or Instacart yes. or whatever. Yes. Um, but, you know, that being said... I have my own thoughts. I don't think you can only be direct to consumer. I think it's going to be very hard to be a big brand. And that doesn't mean not to have tons of sales, but to be an exitable sort of big brand that does well sort of across all consumer lines. Totally selling. Totally. Online. And we're even seeing it, Allie, where brands that started D2C are <laughs> expanding into retail, right? right? So like outside of the food industry, we're seeing it with like Everlane and Allbirds and mm-hmm. Quip and things like that. And then even within food, you know, like Magic Spoon suddenly decides they want to be on grocery store shelves. Right. There's a reason why, yeah. um, you know, because historically, traditionally people buy their groceries from grocery stores. And so, so we do want to touch on something that you said too, with COVID is that, so I have so many people who are pushing back on me here and they're like, okay, Allie, well, uh, e-commerce is skyrocketing over the past (laughs) 90 days. Like, you know, people are buying groceries online and that is true. That's absolutely true. But when we actually look at the numbers, we saw a really big spike in direct to consumer in April as people were, Mm-hmm. you know, trying to find a way to like have a little bit of normalcy and control in their lives. And they, right. I call it like, you know, like altruistic April where everybody wanted to support their favorite brands. Yeah. And then sure enough, May came and those D to C tails sales just tanked yeah. because people had, people had that experience of buying the granola from one website and buying the chocolate bar from another and the, right. you know, sparkling water from another. And yeah. they realized it's, really time consuming. Shipping's yep. expensive. You know, you end up with a dozen of UPS boxes in your hallway. Right. And so what we're really seeing with the rise of e-commerce is on platforms that recreate the grocery shopping experience. Yep. 
Thrive, um, like Thrive Market or, or Fresh Direct. Fresh Direct, right. exactly. Like where that consumer can go on, they can build a, a two hundred dollar shopping right. cart with all of their favorite brands, and it still comes in one single delivery. Yeah. No, I and- think. I mean, you and I, we, <laughs> we really. I mean we see things so alike that I almost feel bad for people listening because <laughs> I, I like, I so agree. I'm like, here, like nodding my head and yes. <laughs> moving my body in all sorts of ways. Okay. We have like two minutes. We didn't even get close, but oh, gosh. Um, what do you wish most brands would know? Like, what are the, what are those top three things that you see? And you're like, Oh, I wish I had gotten in there earlier. Yeah. Oh, Gosh. So I already said a couple of them and I, I think they're worth repeating. I think number one, I say this a lot, but your friends and family are lying to you. Right. I think that that is so important to realize because they love you and they want to cheer you on. They want you to pursue your dreams. But if you are building a business based off friends and family's encouragement, you got to just just take a second and pause there. Um, So that is really important. I wish that people realized that not knowing your numbers, Mm -hmm. not really knowing your financials inside and out is going Mm -hmm. to break your business. Yep. Um, And can I say, can I say one more that I think is really, I've got two more. I've got two more actually. 30 more. (laughs) Okay, great. Um, that again, coming back to that real reason why buyers bring in new product lines mm-hmm. is crucial to yeah. creating a strong wholesale strategy, right? It, which the, means you have to do some market research, which oh, means you have yeah. to really, and, and you, you yeah. every, everyone can figure out someone who goes to college who can get Mintel. Yes. Like, there, you've got to know what your market size is. You've yeah. got to know who else is on the shelf. Who, yep. Where are you going to sit? Who are you going to be next to? How much do they cost? How much did they sell? Do all of that research because it's free yep. early, yep. right? Exactly, exactly. And then I would say the last thing, Allie, and this is something that I have really taken to heart with my own business is this idea that what got you here won't get you there. So we realized that, you know, you might know how to get into a dozen independent stores and that's great, but you don't know how to get into that regional Whole Foods or that national distributor. Like, you know, we all, as founders, we get to this sticking point in our business where we have put, you know, put everything on the line and gotten to a certain level of success. Yep. And then we get stuck. Yeah. Right. And so I always, I always love, I'll just say personally, like, I love when I get stuck. I love when I'm at that point where I'm like, I can't get any further without, without help. And the, the faster people realize this, especially as food and beverage founders, the faster that they realize like what got them to this point is not going to get them to that next point. Yeah. Um, the, the faster they'll grow, like the more they'll do it with ease, you know, it's pretty incredible to watch. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm hearing you and I'm like, you know, I feel like as a founder, I do have this like beautiful baby and I'm like, everyone should just love all mm-hmm. of my six babies because yeah. they're so cute and delicious. 
But when you hear the same thing sort of over and over and over again, yeah. either whether it's from a buyer or a potential investor or a consumer, it doesn't mean you have to be reactive and like go and change your whole thing. It just means you need to sort of start writing those things down and circling the ones that you hear repeatedly, yeah. because that's where you probably have some blind spots and maybe your kid is biting someone in nursery school and you're sort of like, no, they're so well behaved. They're so perfect. They're not a biter. (laughs) Not my kid. Um, Okay. Where can people, they need to find you. They need to take retail ready. They need to listen to your podcast. Give me all of the places where people can tap into you. Yes. So the easiest way to find me is on my website. It's at foodbizwiz.com. That's B-I-Z-W-I-Z. And that's the name of my podcast as well, Allie, Food Biz Wiz. Okay. And then on Instagram, that's where I hang out the most. So my handle on Instagram is it's Allie Ball. And um, if, you know, if you send me a DM, I will get right back to you. I'm always... <laughs> I'm always in my inbox, always looking to connect with new food and beverage founders. I think we should make this like maybe an every six month thing. I I say that to some, to, to some guests, like we have more to do, but I actually think we really do have more to do. (laughs) Well, Allie, Um, you should come on my podcast too. And then we can, we can give your listeners another place to. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. On yeah, food biz with. Exactly. Okay. Um, thank you so much. Um, so much good advice, Matt. Long story <laughs> about the engineering today, but thank you. Um, and um, I'll be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. Thanks for having me, Allie. Thanks for coming. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.